in this thing, which is hilarious. As I looked at the box that it came in, right, I saw that, well, goodness, it's got massive parts. I mean, these are huge parts to this Cozy Coop. So I thought, well, no big deal. I can just throw out the instructions, and I'll just put this together in like five minutes, lickety-split. No big thing. Hour and a half later, I finally finished the thing. And sure enough, Brooks got in this thing, and as he took off, the wheels just started wobbling. And he about just fell over in this cozy coop. I'd failed to read the instructions on how to put the wheels on, and what did I do but compromise the vehicle's functionality, and not only that, my son's own enjoyment. In our passage today, Jude gives us a how-to manual on how to contend for the faith. That's what he's doing. He's given us instructions on how we're to contend for the faith. And he wants us to follow these instructions lest we compromise our faith when it's under attack. And so if you would, turn with me in the New Testament to the little letter of Jude. So if you know where Revelation is, the book of Revelation, it's the last book of the Bible. Jude comes right before the book of Revelation. It's the second to last book. So if you would, turn with me to the little letter of of Jude. Last week, we began a new sermon series on the little letter of Jude, 25 verses in all. And we saw that Jude wrote this letter really to exhort the church to contend for the faith because the church throughout the Mediterranean world, these new churches that had been planted, they were under attack. We learn in verse 4 of Jude that some people had snuck into the church. They were using God's grace as a license just to live however they wanted. They were perverting the grace of God. They were denying Jesus as their only master and Lord. And in verses 5 to 16, Jude uses Old Testament examples of notorious sinners, the big bad sinners of the Old Testament, to actually describe these false teachers and the destruction that they're going to receive for their false teaching. And after spending the first half of the letter just criticizing These false teachers. And if you remember that sermon last week, it was certainly heavy. Jude goes after it. Straight negative. Now Jude turns to exhorting the church in how to combat this threat. Now Jude is turning it to the positive. If last week's sermon was on why we contend for the faith, this week's sermon is on how we contend for the faith. And you can see it there in verses 17 to 23. You can start there. Look there at verses 17 to 23. This is really the heart of the letter of Jude. It's what Jude has been wanting to say, what he's had his eye on the entire time that he has been writing. He's been wanting to get to this point. This is really what he's writing about. And the main idea that I think is being communicated in verses 17 to 23, I think, is this. This is what I think Jude wants us to know and to get from this passage. It's this, that God's people contend for the faith by remembering God's word, remaining in God's love, and reaching out with God's mercy. Those three primary things. God's people contend for the faith by remembering God's word, remaining in God's love, and reaching out with God's mercy. And those three those three things are really gonna, we're gonna unpack in our three points. And so point number one is to remember God's word. How do we contend for the faith? Well, the first thing that we need to do in point number one in verses 17 to 19 is to remember 
God's word. Point number two, the second thing that we need to do is to remain in God's love. We see that in verses 20 and 21. We need to remain in God's love. And then thirdly, we need to reach out with God's mercy. We need to reach out with God's mercy in verses 22 and 23. Those three things are what Jude is talking about in terms of how we contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So let's look at point number one, remember God's word in verses 17 to 19 first. In this section, Jude really picks up where he left off in verse 3. Right? He began with dear friends in verse 3, and now he's picking it back up in verse 17. And you can see it again there in verse 20. And now he's coming back to the beloved or his dear friends. And this is a completely different tone than we saw last week with the false teachers that are infiltrating the church. But here what we see is Jude's pastoral heart for this church, for the people of God. He's not a drill sergeant just firing off commands at God's people as if they're soldiers, but he expresses his love toward them by calling them dear friends. And he does this not only to distinguish them from, the, from those perverting God's grace, but also so that they will actually listen and heed his exhortation in love. And as those called, loved by the Father, and kept for Jesus, he commands them to remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, right there in verse 17. Now, you may remember that back in verse 8, these false teachers were described as relying on their dreams, right? So they're going around saying that they have received new revelation from God. How convenient. That these dreams that they have had are actually really God's approval of their message and their lifestyle. That these dreams are God's approval of them perverting the grace of God and denying Jesus as their only master and Lord. Often throughout the Old Testament, false prophets would allude to their dreams to justify their behavior and to justify their message. But Jude doesn't proclaim new revelation right here. Instead, like an Old Testament prophet of God, he calls God's people to remember what God has already said to them. He calls them to remember. Why? Because they're so prone to forget. They're so prone to accept what is false. And how much more for us who live in an information age? We are inundated with false things from any number of outlets that we interact with week to week. Inundated with information. And if we don't remember God's word, then we're inevitably going to be susceptible to being duped by the word of the world on the path to destruction. If we're going to contend for the faith in the present, then we've actually got to remember God's word in the past. And that's what Jude is communicating. God's word doesn't change. It is just as relevant today as it was then. And so to be truly relevant, we need to remember. We need to remember. After all, how can you contend for the faith that you have forgotten? How can you contend for a faith that you have forgotten? You can't. Remember may sound like a boring command, but it may very well keep you from perverting God's grace 
and actually reaping destruction in your life. And so, friends, we can't contend for what we've forgotten. And one of the ways that we combat false teaching is by remembering sound teaching. And so Jude calls God's people to remember what the apostles predicted as Jesus' authoritative representatives. We already saw that whenever, we've been, whenever I've been preaching through the book of Acts. We've seen the apostles as Jesus' authoritative representatives, his witnesses. And so they're testifying to these things, and we're to remember them. Jude says in verse 18 that they told you, in the end time, there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. Now, we've already seen this prediction back in Acts chapter 20, in verses 29 to 30. You might remember that passage where Paul is with the elders in Ephesus, giving his final farewell to them. And Paul tells the elders in Ephesus, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up, even from your own number, and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Further back than Paul, Jesus actually says quite the same thing in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. He says, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. And what did you do last week in verses 5 to 16, but really expose the fruit of these false teachers? That's what he was doing. These people may look satisfied. They may look sophisticated. But they're actually a sign that we're in the last days between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. They're a sign. And so the church shouldn't be surprised when they rear their ugly heads within the church. We shouldn't be surprised by that. They'll do so by scoffing or mocking others who don't join them in turning God's grace into a license to live however they want to live, acting like those who take God's word seriously have their head in the sand, right? They say that they want to follow Jesus' demands, but then the next thing that they're doing is their life is showing that, hey, Jesus' demands are actually outdated. And at times you'll hear people say that. These things are outdated. Don't you know that those customs, those rules, those are culturally defined. Those are no longer in effect for us today. They mock them by slapping the label legalist, fundamentalist on them for their obedience to Christ. This is what the false teachers are doing within the church. This is what they're doing. And Jude says in verse 19, these people, you got to love that, these people create divisions and are worldly, not having the spirit. So we can spot these scoffers in the church because they hate unity. They hate unity. They divide the church by forming cliques in order to pressure others into their worldliness. All of this is evidence that they don't have the spirit, and ultimately they are spiritual frauds. That's what Jude is getting at. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. In Ephesians 4, Paul urges the church to walk in a manner worthy of their calling by making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Creating cliques in the church ultimately divides it. It divides it. Rather than keeping unity, it creates uniformity 
in pockets. And what happens is it actually creates an echo chamber of gossip, of slander, of discontent that begins to fester. And when it festers, it begins to spew out over into the church. And you know you have a click when others can't join in relationally, where it's closed off to just a select group of people. So brothers and sisters, we have to beware of the destructiveness of such cliques within our own church. Now understand, I'm not saying that we have any right now that I'm seeing, but we need to be warned of what cliques can do. They can divide. Inevitably, you'll be close to some more than others. That's great. No problem with that whatsoever, right? That's not the problem. It only becomes a problem when others can't be included in. That's when it becomes a problem. But because you have the Spirit, you're able to welcome in others just as Christ has welcomed you. You're able to do that because Christ has welcomed you, an outsider, and he has brought you in. And as you hear of dissension or frustration within those relationships, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace by encouraging them to to take up their frustration with the person that they have their issue with. You should go to them and talk to them about that issue that you have. That's probably what's best, rather than letting gossip or letting slander spread throughout the church. Right? This is how those full of the Spirit live with one another. This is possible. This is possible as we remember, not only what the apostles predicted, but also as we remember the one that was mocked on the cross for us. Mocked. As Jesus was being mocked, he didn't revile in return, nor did he get down from the cross. But what did he do? He endured the cross, despising the shame, all for what? The joy that was set before him. The forgiveness of scoffers like you and me. He stayed. Brothers and sisters, scoffers will come and go just as they did in Jesus' day. And they're going to tell you that your head is in the sand, your beliefs are outdated, and that you need to get with the world's program in order to be included. But don't forget that you endure their mocking, not by joining them, but by remembering the one who was mocked so that you could be welcomed in. Through Christ, we endure the shame for the glory and great joy that is set before us that we're going to learn about in two weeks. That's why we endure the shame, so that others might see the futility of their mocking and join in that same joy that we have in Christ. That's why we do that. We want to welcome them in to the joy that they can have in Christ Jesus. Well, we can't contend for a faith that we forget. We can't do that. And so we must remember the apostles' teaching lest we succumb to scoffing. And in order to do this, these believers shouldn't neglect their own spiritual growth, but actually consider how they might keep in God's love. So let's look at point number two. Remain in God's love, verses 20 and 21. Remain in God's love. The best way to spot a counterfeit message is to focus on the real one. That's the best way to spot a counterfeit message. Jude knows it's important to resist false teaching, but even more than that is focusing on growing in the gospel themselves. 
growing in the gospel themselves. It's not always about what you abstain from, but even more importantly, what you actually pursue as a church. And Jude tells us in verse 21 that if we want to grow spiritually and avoid being corrupted, then we've got to keep ourselves in the love of God. And he explains how you do that in verses 20 to 23. He's shown us how. Very practical. But it brings up the question of whether or not those loved by God could actually lose God's love. And the answer is no. You can't. If you're called and loved by the Father and kept for Jesus, then you can't lose God's love. However, God's promise to preserve his people does not cancel our responsibility to persevere as his people. That's part of the issue with the false teachers, is it not? They're saying, God loves me. He's shown grace to me. Now I can live however I want to. No, there is a responsibility to persevere in the faith, and that is what Jude is getting at in this point. This is part of the issue with false teachers, right? It's part of how we know that they're not called. They're not loved by God, kept for Christ. It's because they think they're not responsible for living a holy life. And what we feel in this verse, I think, is really what we call divine sovereignty and human responsibility. That we only avoid apostasy because of God's grace. And yet, God's grace doesn't cancel our need to remain in his love. Obeying God is a part, really, is, is really a part of how we foster a life-giving relationship, vibrant relationship with God. Jesus lived this out himself. He taught on this. John chapter 15, verse 10. Jesus says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Now, Jesus is not saying this is how you become a child of God, but how you nurture and live as a child of God. You see the difference. Two very different things, but that's what he's teaching us. This is how you live and nurture and foster a vibrant relationship with the Lord as his child. But in order to do so, we first must ask whether or not we've received the saving love of God in Christ. You've got to ask yourself that. After all, we can't keep ourselves in something that we don't have. And so, friends, do you have this saving love of God? Maybe you've gone to church your whole life or grew up in a Christian home, but have you asked yourself whether you've truly received the saving love of God in Christ? God created us to share in a loving fellowship with him, a loving relationship with him. And yet we spurned his love toward us by our love for self. Instead of obeying God out of love for him, what did Adam and Eve do? They disobeyed God out of love for themselves. And as a result of their sin against God, God kicked them out of his presence where love between man and God was unhindered. But as a result of sin, we're alienated from a loving relationship with God. But God was not done with humanity, was he? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And this eternal loving relationship is only made possible through Jesus' death on the cross for our sin 
and through his resurrection from death to life so that anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Christ, you might be reconciled to God, brought back into that loving relationship with God. Friend, have you done that? Have you received the work of Christ on your behalf? Have you received him by turning from your sin and trusting in Christ in the work that he has done for you? Have you received the saving love of God in Jesus? I want to encourage you to do that tonight if you haven't. If you have more questions on that, I would love to talk with you about that. If if someone brought you, I'm sure they would love to chat with you more even about that and what that looks like. We'd love to chat with you more on that. For those who are called, loved, and kept, Jude now turns to instructing us in how we nurture our relationship with the Lord. How we nurture the relationship with the Lord. He gives us three ways to keep ourselves in God's love. Three ways right here in this text. The first way is to build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Notice what Jude does not say right here. He does not say, build yourself up. He doesn't say that, right? We're already prone to just do that. (laughs) That's not a hard thing. Instead, he says, build yourselves up. The Christian life is not a solo sport. It's a community affair. To grow in spiritual maturity, you're going to need others in your life that is committed to the same gospel that you are committed to. You've got to have other people in your life that are committed to this gospel, to help you grow spiritually. It is not a solo sport. It's not a spectator sport. It is a community affair. Like a human, deficient of the proper nutrients to grow and thrive, so our growth in Christ will be stunted without others to build up and without others building us up in the faith. In fact, the language of building up right here is an architectural term. The Apostle Paul says that the church is a temple of the living God. And what is the foundation that he says in Ephesians 2? It's the teaching of the apostles. And who's the cornerstone of that? Christ himself. All of this language of growing and building up, right? You get this in Colossians in chapter 2, where we are rooted and built up in Christ. If we're not rooted in Christ, we are not going to grow. Jesus talks about this. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you're not connected to the vine... You will not grow. You will not be built up. The foundation is the teaching of the apostles. Christ is the very cornerstone of that teaching. Everything is built off of him. But here's the thing. Jew doesn't want to just lay the foundation and let the foundation just sit there. He doesn't want that to happen. The concrete has been, has been poured, but the church is like a construction crew That must build. We must build. And we do that in our most holy faith. You see that qualifier right there. Last week we saw that faith that Jude mentions in verse 3. is speaking about the content of what we believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And unlike the false teachers who are tearing the church apart through their division, we're to build one another up by driving home gospel truths into each other's lives. But how do we do this? How do we do this? Think about the structures that we have, the various things that we have in place as a church throughout the week, right? We think about men's discipleship group, small group, men's and women's Bible studies. In each of those meetings, 
we're talking about biblical truths. In each of those meetings, we're trying to drive home the truths of the gospel into one another's lives. That's why those structures are in place. That's why that trellis is in place so that vine can grow on that trellis, on that structure. That's what we're trying to do with that. It's why we preach expositionally through the Bible, right? We don't skip over the hard parts. I mean, if you go listen to last week's sermon, there were certainly some hard parts to it. But we don't skip over that because we've got to preach the whole counsel of God. You need all of it unadulterated in your life to be built up. Brothers and sisters, are you utilizing these structures for your own growth in Christ? Are you utilizing them? What about outside of those regular meetings? I would say consider meeting with another member, with another person to read the sermon passage ahead of time, to pray through it, and then to encourage one another by it. Get with somebody to start memorizing God's word, to store it up in your heart so that you can call it to mind throughout the day, throughout the week. You're going to need those verses when you suffer. You're going to need to be able to pull them to mind. Consider texting God's word to someone. If they're suffering, text them 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 7 to encourage them. If you see God's grace in somebody's life, text them Colossians 1, which we considered this past week in our men's Bible study. Colossians 1, 3 to 5, and point out where you see God's grace in their life. You can do that. That's texting. That's totally what we are familiar with. Very easy to send a text with God's word in it, to drive home the truths of the gospel. We can do that. What area do you need to grow in your knowledge of the gospel? What area do you need to grow in your knowledge of the gospel? If you need to grow in your knowledge of God, his communicable, incommunicable attributes, the ways in which God is like us and the ways that God is not like us, maybe you need to grow in your understanding of sin, of mankind, or your understanding of who Christ is, his person, his work, or how we live in obedience to him. You might consider getting with somebody and reading through a systematic theology, a couple of chapters, and discussing it together to drive home the truths of God's word, to drive home the gospel. Friends, that's not being a nerd. That's just building yourselves up in your most holy faith. That's what the Christian life just looks like, doing those things. It's been said that you cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. Friends, know the word of God and be profoundly wrecked and influenced by it. So in what ways are you seeking to get the gospel into your life through those even in this room? Might you consider that? Well, meditating on God's love for us in Christ actually strengthens us to keep ourselves in God's love. And another way that we nurture that love for the Lord is by praying in the Holy Spirit. It's the second thing, praying in the Holy Spirit. So not only do we build ourselves up, we also pray in the Holy Spirit. Jude has been writing with a sense of urgency concerning those without the Spirit who are trying to destroy the church. And yet, in the midst of this urgency, all the things that he tells us to do, he tells us to pray. I find that fascinating. In the midst of the urgency to try to address these false teachers, pray. Prayer is how we respond to the tyranny of the urgent in our lives. It's how we respond to it. 
It resets our focus. It reminds us that when things seem big, God is always greater. Prayer is actually an expression of our enjoyment in God and our utter dependence upon God to provide what we cannot. That's what prayer is. And as we pray, we do so in the Holy Spirit, which means that our prayers conform to the will and the purpose of the Holy Spirit. And now you might be asking, well, okay, well, what's the will and the purpose of the Holy Spirit? How do we do that? How do we know that I'm, I'm praying in accordance with the will of the Spirit? By praying the will of God, which is his word. Very simple. It's his word. And now what you're seeing is the last point in this point merging. And as we build ourselves up in the content of the faith, what do we do with that content but then pray that word of God for other people? Do you see the connection? You build yourselves up in your most holy faith, the content of that faith, and now you can begin praying it in the Holy Spirit for other people. So I want to give you one simple application for the rest of your life. It's going to radically transform your life. Right here. God's people pray for God's people. God's word needs to be prayed for God's people. And so pray God's word for God's people. That's the point. Pray God's word for his people. When you read the Bible this week, I want you to ask yourself, what is one thing from the text that you're reading that you could actually pray for somebody else? What's one thing that you can pray for another member of this church? And then pray for them right there on the spot as you read the word. Make it a habit of doing that regularly. Paul's prayers are wonderful examples of that. Take the prayers of Paul, begin praying those for other people. We're going to see that in the book of Colossians in our studies. Use the scriptures in the back of your member directory right here. Member directory, scriptures in the back. There they are. All scriptures for you to be able to pray for other people, to help stir up ways in which you can be praying for the body of Christ. And so use those scriptures that we've given to you to be able to pray for one another. We want you to incorporate that in your life. And so we build each other up on a message, and we pray that same message for others as we meet together. And we do all of that as we wait expectantly for the Lord and his mercy to return. Number three, third thing, how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Thirdly, by waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. The motivation for contending for the faith is the mercy of the Lord. That's the motivation. And mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. We deserve eternal death. God in Christ gives us eternal life. The last word for the Christian is not judgment. It is mercy. It's the mercy of the Lord whenever he returns for eternal life. And that is what is motivating us. It's hard to contend for faith when you have nothing to look forward to, is it not? You know how hard that is throughout your work week. When you have nothing to look forward to on the weekend. If you don't even have the weekend, it would be extremely difficult to keep pushing forward. But the mercy of the Lord for eternal life is guaranteed to all of those in Christ. We're like students waiting for summer break to begin rather than for the summer to end. 
like a groom on his wedding day that's waiting with great expectation to see his bride walk down the aisle. That's how we wait expectantly for the return of Christ. Even in the most acute suffering, you have great expectations. The Lord's mercy compels us to persevere in the faith. Jesus himself persevered through the greatest suffering, as I just mentioned ago, all for the joy that was set before him. And only by fixing our eyes on his promises of mercy are we going to be able to persevere in contending for the faith once for all delivered to the, sa- to the saints. And so, brothers and sisters, how you wait for your salvation is ultimately revealing your hope. It reveals where your hope lies. Does your life reveal the hope of heaven or the hope of earth? One passes with this life and it reaps destruction. The other remains and it receives eternal life. Which is it for you? What does it reveal about where your hope is located right now? Is it in the things of this world or is it in the mercy of Christ for eternal life? As we wait expectantly for the mercy of the Lord, finally, we're to reach out to others with God's mercy. Point number three. Look at point number three in verses 22 and 23. Reach out with God's mercy. Jude says in verses 22 and 23, Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Notice the progression in this text. In verse 22, we've got doubters in the church. Effectively, that's what wavering is getting at right there. We've got doubters. In verse 23, we have those who seem to be dabbling with fire. And then finally, those who are defiled by the flesh. So we've gone from doubting to dabbling to defiled by the flesh. Some in these churches have been more affected by false teachers than others. That's what that's getting at. Some have been more affected by false teachers than others. And at different points in our life together, we're going to encounter brothers and sisters at all different points on that spectrum within the church. We will inevitably. And Jude shows us how to relate to each one of them. So the first one, what about doubters? Those who waver. Those who waver. Now, we don't know why they're wavering in this text. We don't know why. Maybe they're questioning the reliability of the apostles' teaching that they had received. Maybe a duty-free gospel sounded like a better deal than the cost of following Jesus. We don't know. But we do know that one of the best approaches to those who doubt is mercy. It's mercy. And we can respond with mercy because God has multiplied mercy to us as we just saw in verse 2 of Jude. His mercy is the basis for us showing mercy to one another. All of us came into our merciful God's world as rebellious sinners in need of God's mercy to reconcile us to himself. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, the guilty who turned to him go free because he paid for their sin. Justice and mercy wed at the cross of Christ. And all who turn and trust in Christ we have received that mercy of God and now we can reach out with the mercy of God 
to help those in need. So if you're here today and you're doubting your faith, recognize that doubt is serious, but it's not terminal. It doesn't have to be terminal for you. Some of the most renowned saints wrestled with doubt. We're talking about Abraham, Moses, David, John the Baptist. They had their doubts at times. Doubt is a part of living in a fallen, sinful world. But we don't have to stay. We don't have to post up in those doubts. And one of the ways that we reach out with God's mercy to those who doubt is by reminding them of God's promises. I love how author John Bunyan gets at this in Pilgrim's Progress, if you're familiar with that book. Wonderful allegory on the Christian life. And I love how he gets at this in that book. The main, uh, the main character is Christian who is traveling or journeying from the city of destruction to the celestial city, the heavenly city. And one day, Christian and his companion, hopeful, get off on the wrong path, and they end up at Doubting Castle, kept guard by giant despair. And they get caught by the giant, and he throws them into the dungeon. And the giant begins to beat them and tell them of all the people that he has murdered and killed, those that he has destroyed. And he tells them that you are going to have the same fate as them. And so here, Christian and Hopeful are stuck in Doubting Castle, held captive by giant despair. But one night, Christian responds to Hopeful and says, What a fool I have been to lie like this in a stinking dungeon when I could have just as well walked free. In my chest pocket, I have a key called Promise that will, I am thoroughly persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that is good news. My good brother, do immediately take it out of your chest pocket and try it. Christian took it out. He put it in the lock and the bolt unlocked. And the door flew open so that Christian and Hopeful were freed. Brothers and sisters, your job is to remind those who waver that the key has been with them all along. It's been with them all along. Those precious promises of God that find their yes and amen in Christ are there in the scriptures. We reach out with mercy by pointing them to the one who is merciful over and over and over and over and over again. The promises of God have been there all along for you who doubt. And brothers and sisters, that's how we reach out with mercy, is by giving them and pointing them back to the promises of God. Secondly, not only those who doubt, but how, do, how about those who are dabbling with fire? Dabbling with fire. Jude continues our outreach in verse, 30, or in verse 23. He commands us to save others by snatching them from the fire. Now, I think that the fire that Jude is speaking about here is the same eternal fire that he's actually spoken about in verse 7. He's talking about future judgment and hell. That's what he's getting at. But Jude isn't saying that they're already in the fire. That's not what he's saying. But that they need to be snatched from the fire. And so we must not give up on them. Right? There's still hope that is left for some that are dabbling with the fire of false teaching within the church. And evidently, that's what was going on within the church. They were being persuaded by these false teachers. They're in danger of being overcome with judgment. 
and they're going to get burned if they keep it up. And yet we approach those flirting with fire, interestingly, by reaching out with mercy. And so, friends, both doubters and dabblers need mercy. But that mercy is applied in different ways. It's applied in different ways. For the wavering, it's reminding them of God's promises. And for the dabbler, it's rebuking them for the way that they're living. One will need a gentle word. The other is going to need a strong word. Both are acts of mercy as they are done in love. They're both acts of mercy. And so, brothers and sisters, do you have a strong word in your toolbox of mercy toward others? Can you give a strong word to those who are dabbling with fire? You don't want them burnt. Can you give a strong word? You may not want to give a rebuke, but it can be one of the most merciful ways to reach out to a dabbling brother or sister. And as we keep ourselves in the love of God, there are going to be times that we need to get ourselves dirty, get our hands dirty to be able to give a strong word to a brother or sister. And really, that's just a healthy part of growing as a Christian, that you're able to do that and receive it. Thirdly, last one right here. So we've looked at doubters, we've looked at dabblers. How about those defiled by the flesh? Some are even in greater danger than those who are dabbling with fire. They've already kind of taken it and gotten burned in the chest by it. In verse 23, Jude commands us, Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Some within the church have now more closely aligned themselves with these false teachers. And yet Jude says that we can still show mercy to them. But it needs to be done with fear. It's got to be done with fear. Jude's saying that we need to be cautious so that we don't get too close and end up getting corrupted ourselves. We need to save some from the fire without actually getting burned by that fire ourselves. We need to hate their sin without committing their sin. If we get too close to those who've been corrupted, then we're liable to be corrupted as well. And so Jude shows us, he tells us to show mercy while maintaining our purity before the Lord. And so, friends, one of the best ways to show mercy with fear is really by continuing to pray for those who have taken false teaching altogether, who are aligning their lives more with the world, continuing to pray for them, reaching out to them, and telling them that you're praying for them. That's one of the best ways that you can do that. As you reach out to them, continue to encourage them to turn back to the Lord, sending scriptures to them in ways that you are praying with them. Brothers and sisters, who might be one person in that category that is done flirting, and in one sense they've been taken by the hook of false teaching in the word of the world to such a degree that it's likely they could be condemned and headed for judgment? Who's one person in your life that you could text tonight and tell them that you're praying for them or call them and pray God's word for them? That's all three different ways that we interact with people at different phases in their walk with Christ. Those who are doubters, dabblers, and defilers. 
Last week, Jude told us why we contend for the faith. Today, we have learned how. God's people contend for the faith by remembering God's word, remaining in God's love, and reaching out with God's mercy. Is that how you're contending for the faith? Let's pray. Father, we give praise to you for these commands. I mean, what a blessing, just so clearly laying out how we contend for the faith. And so, Lord, we give praise to you for that. We're grateful that we have this instruction to live by. And, Lord, we pray that as a church that we would continue to align our lives with the apostles' teaching built upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that our lives would be a fragrant aroma of Christ to you. Lord, may you do this in and through us this week by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.